Blog Talk Radio. Turn me loose, set me free. Somewhere in the middle of Montana. Now give me all I've got coming to me. And keep your retirement and your so-called social security. Swanageddon, the story, sponsored by AV's Waterfowl, W4Hunting.com, and here's your host, Don Swan. You know, I got to tell you, man, every time I hear that song, it puts a smile on my face, and it puts me in a good mood, and there's nothing better than to be in a good mood when you're doing a podcast. Uh, before, you know, we get started on the, the show, I want to reach out to my listeners and I want to thank you for tuning in to Swana Get in the Story, because that's what we're all about. We're all about the story. And, you know, today's no different. You know, my, uh, my guest today, um, I'm really happy that he agreed to come on and, and tell his story. You know, he was involved in a, in a hunting accident and, uh, um, I got to tell you, you know, we had talked on the phone a few nights back and, and just kind of talked about, you know, the accident. We talked about hunting. We talked about family. We talked about life and all of that stuff. And, you know, every now and then as you navigate through life, you, you cross a guy's path and for whatever reason, they leave, you know, a, a big impression on you. And this young man uh, did just that. Uh, I got to be quite honest with you, and I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, but when I got off the phone um, talking to him and, and really sat down and, and thought about the things that we talked about, I literally was blown away. I was blown away. I mean, you know, this guy's 25 years old, um, and he was so impressive, really impressive. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Justin to the show. Justin, welcome, and how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up, um, we, we tried to do this podcast the, the other day, and we had some uh, technical difficulties, and which was fine because we're doing it now. But uh, I know you were on a fishing trip. And I didn't ask you, uh, how did that fishing trip go? And I know, or I think, um, you're going fishing again tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. How'd that go? Yeah, we went down to Ocean City, Maryland and did some offshore fishing over the weekend. We're able to get out there and get some, uh, king mackerel and sea bass. It was a, uh, very successful trip, but a little wavy. Oh yeah. Do you get seasick? Uh, I don't get seasick, but one of the guys on the boat did. <laughs> I get seasick. I don't mess with those uh, deep sea uh, trips. Uh, you know, I've done a few of them, but uh, uh, if I can avoid it, I do. But, you know, Justin, you know, I kind of want to get the show started. And I, I, I really want to know, you know, when you got started hunting, um, who, who introduced you to hunting and, and what were you hunting? My hunting background is very typical of, uh, South, uh, Southwestern Pennsylvania and Western Pennsylvania as a whole. Um, I was taught to hunt by my, uh, dad and my uncle 
and they took us out for the two big animals here in Pennsylvania to hunt, which is the deer and the turkey. And um, hunting legal age in Pennsylvania starts at 12. So um, the first spring after my uh, 12th birthday, they took me out for my first turkey hunt. Um, and that same year, I also started deer hunting um, with a rifle. Um, and so my uncle and my dad would take me and my twin brother out each one at a time um, so that we could go hunting for um, turkey and deer. And then we also did some bear hunting in that um, time frame. And um, over the first um, eight years of my hunting career, I did mostly deer hunting. And, um, and it really evolved into a very uh, hardcore bow hunting, hunting in Pennsylvania and, and Ohio every year, trying to shoot two bucks. Right. And then, if I'm not mistaken, you, you didn't get started waterfowling, I think, like, until high school. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't get started into waterfowl hunting until I was um, 18 years old, really. Um, about my senior year of high school was the first year I um, had my own decoys and started going on my own uh, waterfowl hunts. Um, I, my family had no history with waterfowl hunting, and I didn't really know many guys who waterfowl hunt hunted as well um and so uh when i was a junior in high school uh a friend of mine asked me to go on a september goose hunt and i said well if deer's not in i i might as well go and um ever since that day i've been hooked right now now i know we talked a little bit about it but you know you had just said that that um you didn't have a bunch of guys to go with but you kind of evolved into into the goose hunter and put together a, a pretty large group. It, it's a little unusual when, when you told me, but I, I think you were hunting with, you know, six, seven guys all the time. And, you know, that's a pretty large group. How did you kind of get that group together? How did that group start? Um, our group that I hunt with um, all started with us all playing hockey on the same team. We were all long-term friends playing hockey together growing up. Um, we've all been playing hockey at that point together for eight some years. So we were all close friends and we also all deer hunted and fished and none of us got, were in the waterfowl, but I got into it first and, um, was able to coax all my friends who deer hunted into starting to go out waterfowl hunting. And, uh, some of them hunt deer still, and some have thrown away the deer hunting to just pursue ducks year round. Uh, and that's how the group formed. And it was also a result to uh, PA's difficulty in waterfowl hunting. Um, hunting with five or six guys consistently increases your odds of finding birds every week. Right. Well, you, well, you know, a question is, let me ask you this. So, so you decide, eh, you know, I want to jump into this waterfowl because it's, some additional hunting that I can do. You're kind of venturing out. Now I'm, I'm just guessing you, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, but you kind of, you kind of get going and this and that. Now, when you started going out by yourself, did you start having success? And then you're talking to your buddies and they're like, what, what, what do you mean? And, and then all of a sudden they jumped on board or how did he, how did that evolve with, with the group growing and, and bringing them in? Um, we weren't very successful waterfowl hunters for the first three, four years of our career. Um, we, none of us had anyone who really knew how to waterfowl hunt. We were learning from scratch, um, just reading online, watching videos, and just trying to put it together on our own. And um, so it was more that 
in the beginning, I was able to get them to go because our deer season only gets real good at the end of October and into November. So it's only a month window you really get to deer hunt in a given year. So everyone just wanted more time in the field. Um, and then over the years, we got much better and started to learn how this waterfowl game worked. And um, that's whenever we uh, really solidified the group and a couple guys that ended up joining the group as well we met through our waterfowl adventures, just other guys who were extremely passionate about it. Right. And, and you guys, you guys do a lot of field hunting, huh? A lot of lay layout blinds. I know you got some open water there too, but, but for the most part, you guys are doing a lot of field hunting. Um, yeah, I'd say a good 50% of our hunts are in fields for geese. Um, and then maybe 25% for puddle ducks and mallards. And then we do some, um, big water hunting up on Lake Erie for the diver ducks. Right. Do you, now, now let me ask you this. I mean, do you, do you get any um, of the ducks coming into the, uh, into the fields or is it just pretty much primarily the geese? Uh, it's per, primarily geese. Um, we might shoot one or two ducks from a field in a given year, but our birds, um, the ducks don't really feed in fields in this part of Pennsylvania. Right. Now, now this is, I mean, guys, when I, when I'm going to say what I'm going to say, or, you know, to me, it's unusual, maybe, but maybe to some guys, it's not unusual, but you and I were talking a little bit about, um, you guys having really good success and high numbers on, on banded birds. Um, I know that from talking with you that the particular area that you're, you know, that you're hunting, they, they band, a a bunch of birds. I want you to talk a little bit about um, kind of your strategy and the strategy that was successful for you um, getting the banded birds and, and talk about a couple of the su successful days on, on the bands. Yeah. Um, my history with bands starts from my very first uh, goose hunt. Uh, the very first goose hunt I went on and the very first bird I ever shot was actually a banded goose. Um, and uh, it's been a, uh, a love story with bands ever since. Uh, in our area, we're hunting 90% birds that are resident population geese. So they don't migrate throughout the season. They might do a small molt migration, but in all reality, they stick around in this part of Western Pennsylvania uh, most of the year, 10 out of 12 months. And so the state government and the federal government banned a lot of the local birds to try and understand the harvest rates and the, how much damage these birds are doing to the local farms and the, the golf courses a lot. And so they're really trying to gauge how much of a population we have and uh, control those numbers. And when it comes to hunting them, we'll get onto a group of birds that get banded in certain locations. And with them being resident birds, they stick together in flocks of us. Uh, 50 to 200 birds all season long. The same group of birds is what you, you'll see in, the, in different fields throughout the area. And so once we find a group of birds that has a high number of bands, we'll follow that group of birds every day for, throughout the season until they hit a field we can hunt or if they get into a flight pattern that we can um, traffic them out of. And so we have a real good success targeting bands that way. Right. Now, now I mean – I kind of I kind of know the answer to this, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. Who's orchestrating? Okay, you're going to go north, you're going to go south, and 
east west and 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 who who's in charge of that i i think that's you right yeah i do a lot of the orchestrating and the logistics sides of our hunt um i also probably put in the most amount of scouting because a lot of my buddies still want to go deer hunting and i don't, I don't really care for it anymore so i um I end up having a lot of hours scouting, and I do most of the organizing on the hunt. I got one other friend, John, who um, is the sec leader in the hunt. So if we have a bunch of guys and we can't take them all to one spot, we'll split up into two groups, and he'll take one group, and I'll take the other. Right. So so you're following these birds. Okay, we got, you know, for the sake of argument, 100 birds were on, you know, three quarters or half of the groups banded. You guys, You guys are saying, okay. You know they're hitting this field. We got permission. Um, what's been your 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 biggest success day on numbers of bands? Um, the best day we've ever had on bands has been um, twelve banded birds out of um, twenty four geese shot that day. So fifty percent. Um, and eight of those bands came in one flock, one volley. That's, you know, there might be some people listening here and going, this guy's crazy. But one time uh, I was, I was hunting uh, uh, honkers and we dropped a group and we had six bands. So I, I believe it. I, I, I think that you're doing it. I just, I'm intrigued by, first of all, a couple of things. Number one, that you're willing to put the time in to try and locate bands Two, taking the time to follow that group until obviously they get to go to a field that you have access to. Um, and then three, you know, having the success with the, with the bands. But the next question I have is you guys, like you say, I mean, it happens a lot too in deer hunting, you know, a big game hunting, a guy's first time out, you know, he ends up shooting a Boone Crockett or an SCI, whatever, buck, uh, bear. And then, you know, for the, for the rest of their life, they're, they're they're always chasing you know that that big trophy you know um but and and in your case you know you your very first goose you get banded right so the question i have is now that you guys are are you know consistently getting bands let's just say you know three or four guys shoot and the bird drops down and the band drops what do you guys do i mean who's who's if, if you don't know quite who shot it since everybody's getting bands is it the guy that picks it up or how do you guys decide who keeps the band um we always do the old feather in a empty shell case in uh lottery drawing system um so it ends up that our guys have pretty equal number of bands uh some of the guys who hunt more often like myself have um 12 or 14 bands and some of the guys who go less often have like six but it starts spreading out amongst the group pretty equally well who, who let, let, let's talk turkey who leads the who leads the the group in bands who has the most somebody has to have the most in bands um there's two of us me and my buddy john have the most bands i think we're tied at i think 13 he might have beat me last year and got one more so he might be at so 14 he, all right, so so he's he's right now the king of the hill. Yeah, he had a hunt this year. He got four bands that I wasn't on, so he yeah. caught up real fast. Yeah, right. Damn, that's all right. You know what I mean? You know, quite frankly, I mean, you know, you're a young man, and and I'm assuming you know your group is is 
you know, all your age. And I'm so happy to, to see your enthusiasm um, in hunting as much as you do. And, and you have the love for the sport because, you know, unfortunately we're, you know, the hunter, the younger generation of hunters are falling off so much. So it, it's, it's exciting to me that uh, to hear you guys going out and getting after it because Hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll carry that, you know, when you have kids and, and keep that tradition going because, you know, it's uh, unfortunately the numbers keep dropping, you know, more and more each year. And I, I, I'm sad to see that because, you know, it's, it's such a great hobby and a great passion and, and, and look at the joy that, that it's brought to you and all your buddies. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, waterfowling is part of like american americana it's part of our history here in the united states and i mean you look back in these old photos dating back to the before the civil war and their waterfowl hunting and uh and to see that number slowly trickle away and become something of the outskirts is just um something i i don't want to see happen in my lifetime and don't you trip out with because i love those old photos but don't you trip out when you when you see these old photos and you, and you're looking at, they're like in model A's and model T's and these old cars and their, and, and their, their hunting gear is like so barbaric. Right. And then here we are, you know, many years ahead and, and we have the gear that we have, the, the, the materials and the wicking and just all of that. Right. I mean, the, the, those guys used to, they were tough, man. They went out and they were doing, and I wonder how they didn't get stuck in those old cars all the time. You know what I mean? We got the best of the best and we're always getting stuck. Yeah. I always see the pictures with them in boats and I'm always like, Oh my God, that thing's a little dingy. I wouldn't put it in a uh, bathtub, let alone in a lake. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty cool though. For sure. Well, well, yeah. Justin, I, yeah, I want to, I want to, I, I want you to kind of talk about the day um, of the accident, you know, do kind of paint a picture for us, you know, of what was going on, your, you, you know, your setup, what you guys were hunting and let's get a little bit into that and let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. The, um, the day of the accident, um, that was the, year after I graduated college. So I started working full time, um, directly out of college at my, uh, family's company. It's a commercial printing company named Raft Printing. And, um, so it was the first year in four years that I didn't get to go hunting, um, multiple times a week. And, um, it was Thanksgiving. So it was the first time that year I was going to get to hunt three days in a row. And so I was very excited and we hunted, um, Thanksgiving morning and, um, the accident occurred the day after Thanksgiving. We uh, were going to go hunt a goose field about an hour and a half from my house. Um, it was a field that I scouted the week prior. And um, throughout the week, the birds kept building. And my buddy who lived a little closer was able to get out there and scout it. And by the day we were hunting it, we were expecting between 230 and 250 birds going to the field, which is a pretty big hunt for us. That's the kind of days where we can put up 30 bird days limits off for large groups. And, um, we show up that morning and the spot we wanted to hunt, we got beat to, and we're two hours early before shooting light. And these birds aren't flying for an hour to an hour and a half after shooting light. So we did not 
foresee getting beat to the spot, but we did. So at that point, it became a little bit of a scramble to figure out what we were going to do. And um, we, this farm we had permission to and the other guys had permission to was an uh, extremely large farm for our area. So we just ended up setting up on the opposite corner of them to let them have as much space as they could. And um, we set it up near a pond, hoping that if these birds did go to them first, us being next to the water would be able to call in these birds that were either spooked or um, just frazzled in general. Like, it'd just be a good secondary location. And um, Pennsylvania, we had out 50 to 60 full-body decoys. And um, we were sitting around waiting for the birds to fly, and it's about an hour after shooting light starts. And um, the Ruth Lake is um, three miles behind us, the direct opposite way of which we're sitting, which I never like to do. I always like facing the birds. Um, and so I'm standing next to my blind, which is on the far left of our group. We're all in layout blinds that day. And um, I'm standing there looking out the back. And um, next thing I hear, my buddy says, a single's coming. And I never saw the single. And so I'm gonna, I kneeled down to tr real slow and went to get in my blind on my hands and knees to try and be less of a silhouette for this bird to pick out. And as I'm crawling into my blind, my left knee hit the gun barrel and um, caused it to discharge. Now, so 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 let's see if I got this right. So you're the birds coming. You 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 you're trying to crawl in, but are you crawling in downrange? Are you crawling in from the side, or I mean, how did you how did you try to access to get into the blind? Um, I tried crawling in from the side over the door panel and um, my gun facing out the front of the blind um, with the barrel sticking out about a foot and a half. So that way it was um, in a secure location, in which I thought it was. And um, when I went to get in from the side of my blind, my gun moved from the time I stood up till when I went to get back in be it someone knocked into my blind, be it I knocked it just standing there, I don't know. And that caused me to lose track of where the down range was. And um, that's how I hit my knee off the barrel. Right. So then the, so the gun goes off and I got to imagine immediately you knew that, that this was serious. I mean, you knew we got a situation. So what did you do after that? Yeah, not to get into the super details of the the grotesque details, but um, as soon as the gun went off, I could see how much blood was coming out of my leg. And the entry point for the wound was about three inches above my knee. I rolled over onto my back, and um, my whole group I was hunting with also knew something bad has happened. They didn't know what happened, but they knew it wasn't good. Um, and my uh, girl, my longtime girlfriend's brother, he uh, unloaded all my firearm and his firearm, and then he initially was the person assessing me. And right away, we need, knew we needed to put a tourniquet on the wound. Um, there was just the blood. We needed to stop the bleeding as much as possible so that we could um, get the ambulance there, or in my case, with a helicopter to fly me to the hospital. Um, and so... They tourniqueted me with uh, two belts, 
And then my brother, who was on the hunt, um, tried clogging the hole with um, a glove to try and compact the wound as well. Um, patient ready for the emergency responders. Um, my one buddy instantly called 911 and got an ambulance sent on the way and also started talking to dispatch about getting a helicopter sent on the way because um, we were a good 35 minutes from uh, a hospital at that point. And the hospital in that area isn't as large or as capable to handle an instance like this as they are down in um, the city of Pittsburgh. So we were trying to get a helicopter dispatch. And um, while that was also going on, my other friend went out to the main road to escort back the ambulance and fire truck because we're on the middle of nowhere dirt roads and it's hard to get there with self-service and at that location you have none hardly any and so he went out to the main roadway to uh escort the ambulance services to uh, my location right now you had waiters on too right yeah i had waiters on because we were hunting in a muddy field and we were hunting next to the body of water that was in the field a farm uh a farm pond and mm-hmm. so um trying to assess the wound um, we were going to cut my pant waders off to see if there was more bleeding that we didn't want, we didn't see previously, an exit wound or um, of some sort that also could have been compacted to um, slow the bleeding. And so um, my buddy pulls out his knife and he, um, he starts cutting my waiter off. And I look down to him and I go, man, that's the wrong leg. You're cutting the pant leg off the wrong side. Switch legs. Do you think there was a little pressure on you guys there or what, right? Uh, there was unreal pressure on all of us in that time. Well, the good thing is is that, uh, well, a couple of things. The first thing that, that comes to my mind is that you assembled a group of guys that in a situation uh, like that, uh, happens and you guys kind of banded together like brothers and, you know, basically just jumped into action. And, and, you know, it's, I mean, I'm just guessing this, but I think it's an educated guess that without that group of guys there, you wouldn't be here doing this podcast today. Yeah. Without the great group of guys I was hunting with that day, uh, to the other five guys that were with me, they all saved my life without them. Um, I wouldn't be able to talk to you today. Um, they kept calm and they, we all knew enough basic medical training and emergency training to stabilize me, to get me to, um, to the hospital. Yeah. Now, now, so you get stabilized, you know, you, you hit an artery, I think that you had told me and, and you get, you get yourself stabilized and they, they, do they actually, does the ambulance come out into the field or did they bring you to the ambulance? How, how did that work and how that, how that go down? Um, they were able to drive the ambulance up to almost 40 yards, 30 yards away from um, our decoy, bl- from our blind. Um, they were able to drive the ambulance straight out there and they also drove the fire trucks out there. Um, but they weren't able to get all the way to me. So once they got me on the stretcher um, between the two um, EMTs and a couple of my buddies, they were able to carry me to the ambulance itself. 
And then, again, whenever they got the helicopter to land in the field, they were also able to carry me from the ambulance to the helicopter. Right. So the ambulance, once you got back, once you got back to the ambulance, though, they, they were working on you pretty hard, getting you prepared for the flight, right? Yeah, they were able to get on some military-grade tourniquets, which are far better than any of the any substitute that we ha- you can have, be it two belts. Uh, those military-grade ones can uh, really do a good job. Also, they were able to uh, get me on some uh, pain medication and uh, hook me up to an IV for fluids and um, blood. You know, I, I was going to bring this up later in the show, but I'm deciding to do it right now. So after I talked to you and and heard your story and, and kind of, you know, we ch- we talked and, as I said, over phone calls and stuff, um, you mentioned you mentioned military grade tourniquets. And I have to tell you, um, after I heard this story. And uh, you and I have a, a mutual friend. His name's Bill. And we'll talk a little bit about him later. But both Bill and I kind of kind of had a, um, a gut check, so to speak. And we both uh, kind of revised our, our in-the-field um, first aid. And I can tell you that I never had a tourniquet in any of my hunting bags. And, and not only just waterfowling, but big game hunting, I can guarantee you, this is without a doubt, I will always, uh, from the, the day I met you and moving forward, um, always have, um, you know, a couple of things. The first thing is the tourniquets and, and um, something that potentially can help me um, coagulate or stop, you know, heavy bleeding. Like in your case, you used um, what you had, which was a, a wool glove, but I can tell you, and, and, I, and I, um, I'm hoping that people listening to the show, um, it's going to um, give them a, uh, you know, a, a minute to think about it and, and realize that I know we always try to save weight, but, you know, if it means one less decoy, is that the end of the world? Uh, maybe to my buddy Bill it might be, but, and, you're, and Bill, <laughs> but other than that, you get what I'm saying, right? And and yeah. so, so I, I felt it'd be important that, that I bring that up because at least for me, and I know for Bill, because we, we talked about it, I definitely, um, you know, appreciated uh, hearing this story and, and, and moving forward, but um, I definitely have adjusted uh, my, my field bag for sure. But anyway, so, so kind of moving forward, they get you on the helicopter. Um, typically, they don't let... Um, anybody ride with you other than the EMT, but they let your brother go and tell them why they let your brother go. Um, well, just to reinforce your last point is I also don't enter the field anymore without um, a clotting agent and a tourniquet as well that we've done that every t- on every hunt since the accident. Um, but back to your question, uh, uh, the flight nurse, who landed in the field, they were loading me up, and my brother, twin brother, was asking if he could come on the plane. He goes, no, we can't bring any passengers. And um, it turned out that the the flight nurse there was also a twin. And she said that in this type situation, if she was ever in it, she would want to have her twin there. So she uh, allowed my brother to go on the flight with me. And that was uh, very uh, comforting to me. I bet. 
I bet for sure. So, so they get you to the hospital and, and, and what, what did they, they, I think they immediately had to do some surgeries. Is that correct? Yeah. Whenever um, I landed in um, the hospital in Pittsburgh, I went into it thinking I was going to lose my leg just based off of my, what I saw, I thought there was no way they were going to be able to save this leg. Um, and so they wheeled me straight from the helicopter pad to um, an operating room. And um, I was in surgery for eight hours the first time, and they had to do um, major uh, artery reconstruction. And um, the major damage on the leg was actually occurred in the calf muscle. Um, that's where the bullets, well, the pellets in this case um, settled after the firearm went off. So there was major damage in the calf muscle. And um, after eight hours of surgery, I woke up and still had my leg attached, which I was pretty shocked by. And, and so, so I know that, you know, as time went on, they, they, um, I think you had an infection and they did everything that they could to save the leg, but, that that unfortunately didn't happen um how, how i'm just interested i mean how was that decision made i mean was that your i mean obviously it's a medical decision but at the end of the day it's your decision kind of walk me through you know what you had to do um with that yeah after the original surgery i had my leg for an, an extra another two weeks trying to do everything we could to save it um as time went on, it wasn't getting any better. And um, I contracted an infection in the wound as well. And uh, it got to the point where even if they were able to save the leg, I'd be worse off than if I had a prosthetic leg with how much that technology has evolved over the last 20 years. Um, if I had a damaged leg to that point, to the extent it was, um, would have been worse off than amputating it and trying to save as much healthy tissue as possible. So um, I signed the papers to have my leg amputated um, on day 13 and being in the hospital. How many days were you in the hospital total? Um, I ended up being in the hospital for um, 29 days, just shy of a month. I went in the day after Thanksgiving and got out um, right before Christmas. And I bet that was fun, right? Yeah, Staying in the hospital that long. Yeah, I all I wanted to do was see my uh, family at Christmas time and uh, get out of that room. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that saved you though, you told me that you were setting your your alarm to wake you up to watch hunting shows. Is that right? Isn't that right? Yeah, I was uh, stuck with basic cable, so. Uh, I'd set my alarm. I learned the TV schedule so I could um, wake up and watch uh, the hunting and fishing shows that were playing on cable. <laughs> That's great. Now I, I know I know this is kind of unique, but so you know we're 30 days into this. You know, I, you know, countless surgeries, and you, you're getting ready to get out. And I want you to tell everybody what you what was on your mind and what you did right when you got out of the hospital. Yeah, well, um, the whole time I was in there and uh, 
all I wanted to do was get back outside. That's um, that's my biggest therapy is just being out in nature. And um, and so the day after I got home from the hospital, I uh, my way down to the local creek by my house and did some trout fishing. And um, I got to a real easy, accessible spot and um, had my girlfriend and my little brother there to help me. And um, I fished for about an hour and caught my uh, first trout out out of the hospital. How'd that feel? I felt like it was meant to be. Just going up to a random spot and catching one. Yeah, it felt like something was meant to be. That's super awesome. So, so you get home and and kind of talk me, walk me through, um, kind of your your rehab, trying to get back strong. I mean, what what did you do? What I mean, what what did you do to to get back? You know, probably put weight on and and get some muscle strength back. What what did you do? Yeah, well, um, during the time in the hospital, I ended up losing a lot of weight, um, just from the muscle atrophy and just the the physical toll my body had to go through, through all those surgeries and the amputation, I ended up losing probably close to 40 to 45 pounds through the whole ordeal. And um, so I got out of the hospital and it was all about getting strong um, so I could get my mobility back and um, be able to be uh, active again. And so I uh, ate a large volume of food back to where it was when I was playing hockey and um, started working out as much as I could. And uh, it started off slow and steady with doing some push-ups and crunches and squats. And um, I slowly worked up my way to a basic weightlifting set that I had at my house. And um, after about three weeks of that, I was cleared by my doctors to uh, start going back to the gym. Right. And I, I know this for, for sure. Um, you know, we, early in the, earlier in the show, we talked about a, a mutual friend that we have, um, uh, my buddy Bill. And, you know, you, you, uh, he's becoming your buddy as well. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think you uh, flew out to Texas like 45 days uh, out of the hospital. And then uh, talk a little bit about that hunt uh, with Bill and, and what you did. Yeah, so um, through this whole process, I've been able to meet some pretty fantastic people like yourself and um, Bill. And um, Bill heard about my accident and um, wanted to get me back out in the field. Um, And so he called a a mutual friend of ours and uh, asked if if I'd be up for going on a hunt to his ranch, um, a deer and duck hunt. And so uh, I said, I'm all in. And so... uh, a little over a month after I got home out of the hospital, it was the end of January, we flew out there for the last week of duck season. We went out for four days for the last um, couple days of duck season down there in Texas. And um, he took me out on my first um, uh, big hunting adventure since the accident. And um, I managed to shoot uh, a Texas whitetail and um, some duck species that I didn't really get the chance to here in Pennsylvania. I shot my first widgeon on that uh, trip. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And then, and then I think moving forward, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure how long it was after that, but you guys jumped on a, another plane and off to Canada. You went and you went on another hunt in uh, Canada. Talk about that. Yeah, and um, since that trip down to Texas, um, I, me and Bill and uh, 
have become good friends uh, with our mutual shared love of hunting. And um, he's the only guy I know who's uh, more of a stocking goose nut than I am. And uh, he uh, goes up to uh, Canada every year up to Saskatchewan for um, a couple weeks to do uh, goose and duck hunting. And uh, this year he extended the invite for me to come up for a week. And so um, me, my brother, and um, two friends came up there to hunt with Bill for a week. And uh, he, uh, some of the best duck hunts of my life. I, uh, it's unreal up there. Yeah, he got into some snow geese, and you're not used to hunting snow geese, huh? Yeah, I got to shoot my um, first Ross and snow goose on that hunt. Um, also, my first speckle belly. So it was a, it was a major goose hunting adventure for me. Right. And, you know, I, I have to ask because, you know, he, you know, I know um, how, how difficult it can be, you know, hunting fields and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but like when you when you're you were in Saskatchewan and, and, and even moving forward um, back in your in your home state, um, number one, the first question I have is, um, you know, how, how how good are you getting around now? I mean, how how much? um after the accident are you hindered uh, trying to get around and then um question two is um what changes because obviously there had to be some changes made um in order for you to to do the hunt so i'm interested in knowing those two things yeah um uh beginning um last year was my first year hunting um with my prosthetic limb um, get my prosthetic leg and getting used to using it and hunting on it. And, um, as I rehabbed with it and got better with it, which was a year long process to get to the point where I am now and being fully, uh, used to it. Uh, I found that walking on dry land and in fields, isn't much of an issue past what it used to be. I mean, I can't carry as nearly as much as I can as I used to, and I'm a little, I'm slower than I used to be. Um, but the real issue I've ran into is um, water, and not even water. It's sticky mud. Um, just uh, sticky mud with the prosthetic limb just really inhibits its ability to function, and um, I get real tied up with that. So uh, when we were in Saskatchewan, uh, we uh, would walk the long way around the pond just to limit. Um, mud I'd have to walk through and stuff like that and then also when I was walking um, Bill or my brother Jesse would walk alongside of me so I could use them as a little bit of a brace to help me pull myself out of mud and um, but then after that experience I thought I need to do something about this to be able to hunt in Pennsylvania and some of our uh, beaver dam swamps and some of our marshes up here so I went out and bought me a a very nice duck hunting kayak and because walking on dry land and getting a kayak to the water is not very difficult and I can paddle pretty much anywhere but walking can be difficult right but I mean hey, you're figuring it out right and 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 I mean heck you I mean you're hunting again which is to me amazing in itself um, for one you didn't give up on the sport and for two physically you know, you're putting the work in and, and making the, 
the necessary changes that you need to make so that you can be successful. And even if you weren't successful, hell, you're out in the field, right? And like you said, the outdoors is kind of uh, your your happy place, right? Yeah, after the accident, um, my perspective on hunting has uh, shifted from wanting to put up big numbers and get these big trophy pictures that a lot of people are chasing to um, just appreciating my time out there. Um, I could go out and shoot three birds on the day and birds could quit flying, but I just want to spend more time outdoors. Um, Likewise, when we talked earlier, um, ever since the accident, I almost have a new perspective on life. It's a, a real unique perspective to go through something like that and come out better for it. And so I see almost everything through rose colored glasses anymore. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's powerful stuff for sure. Um, now, now getting back to, to Pennsylvania, um, I know you made some, some changes with, uh, with your kayak and, you know, maybe the places that you're hunting. What did you do with your equipment? Yeah, um, here in where we hunt most of our hunts, uh, it's either in fields running um, goose spreads or it's hunting water. And um, my unique twist on our Pennsylvania hunting is I run a goose spread while I'm duck hunting. I run a full goose field spread on the edge of the water, and I run um, water goose decoys. So um, for me to be able to carry in the amount of decoys that I, I would like on our hunts, I uh, switched from a full body only spread to um, now I'm running uh, dive bomb decoys. Uh, They're silhouettes um, just so I can uh, keep the same amount of decoys with far fewer trips and also be able to fit it in my truck. Right. And, and the cool thing is that you're able to, uh, to get it out there, which is great. That's awesome. You know, a question I have, kind of moving forward um you know i I, i'm sure and it's probably hard to um kind of reflect back on on the day on the on the accident um just kind of you know everything that that happened and you know obviously you're an avid hunter you you know i mean you're 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 diehard and you do all of those things but as you reflect back on it you know, obviously gun safety comes to mind for sure. Um, you know, what happened, what, what, what changes have you made? And then the the next question is, you know, just as much as this was traumatic for you and your family, um, I mean, I could only imagine, um, your group of guys and, um, question is one, are, are you guys still all hunting together Two, I'm sure if you are, that you guys kind of have a complete, a different approach um, on hunting. Kind of talk to me a little bit about that. What have you changed? Gun safety, um, really even just dealing with your buddy's emotions on what happened. Yeah, and, um, uh, yeah. luckily uh, through all this, all the guys I hunt with are still the same group of guys I hunt with today. Um, they all still hunt with me almost every weekend. And, um, from that accident, the thing we, uh, took from it is it only takes once. Um, everything can go right 
99 or 1,000 times, but it only takes that one time for something to go wrong for it to end tragically. And um, so on um, what, what we did wrong, we always felt like we had very good gun safety and uh, treated it as, we, as responsible hunters. And um, the biggest thing we took away from that hunt was uh, anytime you're not in direct control of your firearm, and that be it within an arm's reach, um, you need to stovepipe your, your weapon. You need to stovepipe your, uh, your shotgun. And uh, when I say stovepipe, it's um, by uh, we take the shotgun shell that's in the chamber and pull it out and stick it into the um, export so that it's jamming the receiver. And um, that way it allows the hunter easy access to load his gun and the shell's already ready if he needs to. And it allows all the other hunters in the group to visually see that the firearm is unloaded right now that's a great idea i mean it's just a good a good um practice but um do you i don't know i don't know that this is relevant but how about your setups i mean are are you setting up uh differently I know, I know we, we talked when we talked last, you know, you, ha- you had made a great point. I'm going to bring it back up. You said, just like you said, you can hunt a thousand times and on the thousand and one time, something bad happens. And you had mentioned to me, you, you said, Paul, you know, one of the things that happened to you was that you started to treat your firearm like a tool. And I thought that was um, a really um, accurate um, analysis of, of what you were doing because I, I'm, you know, um, that that's I've, that's happened to me before too. You're so used to having it because you're in the field so much, and it to us it is a tool. But at the end of the day, um, in your words, you said it also can be a deadly weapon. Uh, wouldn't you agree there? Yeah, I definitely think I lost my healthy fear of the firearm, and I lost a little bit of uh, didn't have the proper respect for what it is, be it a deadly weapon. Um, and uh, fear that it is a healthy level keeps you a little bit sharper and more aware of what's going on with that firearm than if you lose track of it. I mean, you and me, we spend mo- – I mean – over the last years, we spent thousands of days in the field, and uh, it's it's not hard to start seeing it as a tool like anything else. And um, I really think that's a, a really flawed way of looking at it. And that's one of the things I go into the field every day with a um, a healthy fear of what can happen. Right, and you know one of the, one of the things you said to me that maybe one of the most powerful things that I've ever heard in my life is you know we talked a little bit about your your buddies and and having to go through it with you and and obviously your family and stuff and you said to me you said Paul the best thing that came from one of the best things that came from this is that you shot yourself talk to me a little bit about what you meant by that yeah um from the instant the gun went off and I could see that all my friends were safe and healthy. I was relieved that when I did make this screw up, I didn't, I didn't permanently hurt 
or kill one of my best friends. Um, I think I wouldn't be able to live with myself if uh, if the accident resulted in the harming or the death of one of my friends. And so I've always been um, grateful that if when it did happen, it I was the person that paid for my own mistake and not someone else. Yeah, I mean that's that's like I said, that's some powerful stuff for sure. Um, you know, when you said that, that was one of those things that night when we were kind of preparing for the show and talking that you had said. And when I got off the phone that, you know, it wasn't all about Justin, you know, you, you, you had the accident and accidents happen. It's unfortunate, but you know, hunting is a dangerous game. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, I mean, not only do we have firearms, but a lot of times we're in situations where there's deep water, cold water, uh, ice, all of those things. And, and, you know, having your, you know, your senses be at the, 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 the best that they can be at, at, at every moment of it, A, is difficult because we get tired and, and hunting does that to you. But at the end of the day, I mean, it has to be done. And again, you know, listening to all of these things that, that we've talked about, I mean, really, you know, I'm 53 years old. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's even, and I've been doing it a long time and, uh, um, it, it definitely, um, rejuvenated me to, to get it back together, um, and, and pay, pay a whole lot more attention to what's going on. Although I'm a, I'm a gun, you know, safety, uh, nut, but, and so were you, so it's no different. I'm no different than you just older. Um, but with that being said, you know, where's Justin today? I mean, what, what, what's keeping you busy? What are you doing? How do you feel? Um, Talk to me about, about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, since the accident happened and I got out of the hospital, um, I took a, a, like a little hiatus from life and just really focused on my own recovery. I spent three or four months doing nothing but working on my own rehab. Um, I didn't go to work at that time. I, did, I postponed my uh, graduate education to just really focus on getting healthy. I felt like that was the first thing I needed to focus on. And um, since then I got back into, I worked full time at the family company and um, I go to school two or three nights a week to get my master's degree and MBA from Pitt. And um, I've almost had this like resolve to want to do more than I did before. I like, I appreciate every, uh, every moment I get to go outside. So I've been fishing more than I used to be. And I don't take days off hunting anymore. Um, I wake up and it's raining outside and it's 30 degrees. I'm still getting up and going just because I, you just don't know um, when it can no longer be available to you. I mean, you just have to appreciate it more. So I, Stay busier now than I did before. Um, I'm currently on pace for my uh, uh, record-setting days on the water for this season, um, and uh, that's with working full time. That's awesome. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you tell me you're rock climbing now? Yeah, um, I got into rock climbing shortly before my accident, maybe a year before my accident, and. Um, I was progressing pretty well and doing it for my workout um, before the accident. And then the accident occurs and I'm in the hospital and um, 
I'm like, how am I going to go rock climbing? And all my friends and my family are like, you're not going to rock climb anymore. Uh, you're just going to have to pick a new hobby. And uh, three, four months after the accident, I uh, started hitting the rock climbing gym again and uh, learned to start climbing on one leg, adaptive climbing. That's awesome. I mean, I mean, in general, Justin, you know, um, it's inspiring to me that um, how you've bounced back, how you've kept a positive outlook on hunting, how you've become a better steward to the game. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, um, if this happened to them, could go the other way. And, and the fact that you, you didn't um, is really inspiring. And, and all of the things that, that you're doing now um, to me are fantastic. I think it's, I think it's great. And um, man, it's, it's a, your story is, is definitely a story that needs to be heard. And I can't tell you how um, happy I am that you chose, you know, I, I just kind of started doing these podcasts and, and, and um, you know, I wanted to, um, really do podcasts, not, not really about me, but I wanted to do a podcast about, um, hunters and their stories, because that's why we do it at the end of the day. It's not really what we have. It's, it's the story. And when you get an opportunity to, um, get a story like this out, not only is it inspiring and I think will be inspiring to many people. I also think that, it shows um, anybody out there listening that, that may have had a similar um, accident happen to them that, you know, you can keep continuing doing your passion and your love. And obviously with the hard work that you've put in, you, you've been able to do that. So um, I really, really appreciate you being on. And um, I think that, um, I, I, I'm looking forward to, um, I know that, that it's, it's going to happen that we get an opportunity to hunt together. So, um, I really want to thank you so much for being on the show and, um, hopefully, uh, down the line, um, you're going to be able to come back on and, and tell another story just in a different light. Uh, would you be uh, up for that? Yeah, I'm I'm always up for that. I I just took away that there there needs to be an extra level of safety involved in our hunts. Um, that's and I'm looking forward to going on a hunt with you someday. Yeah, that's going to be great. Well, Justin, thanks for being on the show, and uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, good luck tomorrow on your your fishing trip. I'm sure you'll do well. Oh, uh, thank you. Okay, man. I'll talk to you. Talk to you.